0: Pain control and sedation, not the same thing. You're not the same thing. Not the same thing. <laughs> this is such a huge point of confusion for people in critical care. I think because primarily, a lot of our pain control medications have sedating effects. So oftentimes we confuse sleepiness mm. with comfort and they're really not the same thing. So today we're gonna dive into why you need adequate pain control for your ICU patient how it's different than sedation, what the different drips are and like how they work. And we're not gonna get super deep into it because honestly, that's like an hour long lecture in and of itself, but we'll go over the overview of why it's important to understand the difference between making your patients sleepy and keeping them actually physically comfortable. Sounds good.
1: As we dive into it, my name's Anna. I am a first year student registered nurse and anesthetist and
0: I have been a travel nurse the last two and a half years. I'm Chrissy, I'm a nurse anesthetist, and I've been a CRNA for the last five and a half years. Um, One of the biggest things that shocked me, honestly, in CRNA school was like, understanding this at a way deeper level, and I remember being like, oh my God, if only I do this sooner! So today, you guys are going to get all of the knowledge that I never had, and hopefully feel a lot more empowered to care for your patient and keep them comfortable. Yep, so there is an
1: in-depth lecture, and it's in the Confident Care Academy membership. So we're going to have lectures on opiates like fentanyl and we'll have a propofol lecture, a versed, we'll have presidex,
0: all of that. Those will all get those own separate mini lectures. We all get their own separate mini lectures. And there also will be a way deeper dive analgesia versus sedation versus paralysis lecture, which I shouldn't even have to add that, but that's another, that's another rant paralysis for another day. Paralysis is also not the same I'm as going sedation. To, I'm going to rant about that in another episode because <laughs> I don't want my blood
1: to boil. Um, but <laughs> we'll circle back to that, but all of we'll those back to that. in-depth lectures we'll do that for a the pharmacology back. review it will be in the membership, but yes. today we're just doing kind of a general broad topic talking about the difference between the two. Yeah, so, so what do you think the first thing is Like that people often get wrong on okay. like their
0: assessment? The most important thing to understand is that your ICU patient is probably having pain. Yeah. So this is, of course, going to be very situation-dependent, very patient-specific, their age comes into play, if they were on home opioids or had a chronic pain diagnosis before they came in, did they just have a major surgery, have they been here for three months and they're really not having pain anymore, they're just deconditioned, Are they super swollen all over, like all of these different things contribute to a patient's pain. It's extremely important to have good pain control in the ICU because poor pain control leads to poor outcomes. I'll link an article here that you guys can read more about it, but essentially poor pain control in the ICU can lead to PTSD, it could lead to delayed discharges, it can lead to all of these different like increased stress responses in the body that cause your patient to be sicker. So please, please, please understand that pain control is crucial in the critically ill patient. Even for a patient who is not at
1: the very critically ill intubated moment, pain control is really important for like fresh post-op patients so that they can get out not be bed. in enough, like in enough pain
0: but not enough pain that they're not going to be able to get out of bed. Yes, you want them to be able to get out of bed. You yeah. want them to be able to take deep breaths. Yes. You want them to be able to do the things they need to do to recover. Um, We also don't want them snowed and not breathing. So there is a gentle balance there. Which is why you need to know the mechanism of action and how things present differently. And that's
1: why we're talking about all of this today. And we'll get
0: into that later in this video. It's also really important to understand that sleepiness doesn't equal pain control. So although our opioids, medications like fentanyl and dilaudid and morphine, do have the side effect of causing sleepiness, they do have sedative effects, Mm -hmm. that doesn't mean that sedation works the same way in reverse. So your midazolam, your propofol infusion, those things, just because your patient's sleepy, it does not mean it's controlling the pain pathways or blunting the pain response. If you continue to crank up a propofol drip high enough, eventually you can knock anybody out and make them asleep. But the body might still be mounting a response to pain. You can mask those effects, but you're not necessarily controlling it. Now in the ICU we have these limits. Usually most ICUs don't allow nurses to run the propofol over 80 mics per kilo per minute. I think yeah. is what our role was. Of course, I'm sure the policy is gonna be different everywhere you go. And this is on an intubated, like ventilated patient typically. I, I think it'd be kind of crazy to run propofol as <laughs> so a non intubated patient, but yeah. that's okay. <laughs> um, that's that's something we do in the OR. That's like a completely different thing. You know, a lot of times people will see a patient who's coughing and bucking the vent and they're tachycardic and they're hypertensive, and these are all cues that your patient's in pain. And then they say, oh, go up on the sedation. That agitation and sedation is like not, again, the same thing. Really, you could probably just give your patient like 25 mics of fentanyl, 25 mics of fentanyl, 25 mics of fentanyl get them nice and comfortable, and then leave the propofol drip where it is, or maybe even decrease it. Again, especially for the fresh post-op patient
1: who has massive incisions, who has a lot of swelling, inflammation, and a breathing tube, they're uncomfortable. Those things are
0: uncomfortable. They are That's hard. not a comfortable situation. <laughs> Having good pain control is also going to help you to wean down the sedation faster, get them compliant with the ventilator faster, get them into a spontaneous mode, and get your patient extubated sooner. Uh, like talking about like a fresh post-op patient, for example. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So these things are really, really crucial to understand. We can talk a little bit about the different pathways. like again opioids are primarily working on opioid receptors and there's different subtypes of receptor Mm -hmm. delta kappa Mm -hmm. mu um and there's like even more subtypes after that of like things that are related to that pain system which again we'll get into in the cca lectures but essentially what's happening there is that these receptors exist in our brain and spinal cord and when an opioid binds it it's decreasing the amount that those neurons transmit the pain signals. It's making the pain signals transmit less often because it's hyperpolarizing the cell, meaning making it less likely to be able to conduct an action potential. We get into that in the CCA membership. We have a whole conduction lecture (laughs) all about action potentials. (laughs) And join us for more. (laughs) We'll review it again in this lecture in depth. But basically, you're less likely to transmit pain signals. Mm. They do have side effects of sleepiness. They can have side effects like itching and nausea, depending on like the type of opioid that you're using. They can have other side effects like, I don't know, whatever. Sleepiness, itching, nausea, whatever. Uh, oh, respiratory depression, obviously. obviously. That's how people overdose, right? It's like yes. they their drive to breathe goes away and they're not breathing enough and then they hypoventilate and then they're, carbon dioxide levels rise and they become acidotic and then that's, that's how people, yeah. you know, unfortunately pass away. When we have sedation drugs, they're working on a completely different pathway. Totally different pathway. They're ways. primarily working on GABA receptors. I remember when I was first learning about the GABA receptor, it was my first degree, it was my psychology degree and my psychopharmacology course. And I remember the way that I memorized GABA was like, go to bed. That was like the receptor that like helps yeah. regulate sleep. Like when you activate the GABA receptor, when you turn it on, it makes you sleepy. Now, most of our sedation drugs are not direct agonists. They're not directly turning on the GABA receptor. They're like basically helping modulate it to make it more likely to bind to agonists that already float around. But the bottom line is that the short version for the podcast is that when we have medications on board, like midazolam, like adavan, like propofol, they all work slightly different, again, from each other. They all have their own unique properties, but sedation medications as a category help make the GABA receptor more active. That also hyperpolarizes the cells Mm -hmm. through the chloride channels, and essentially it makes it less likely to conduct activity in the brain as well. But a different part of the brain than pain control. It's the sleepy center. It's making you more sleepy. So again, if you're sleepy enough, you can mask signs and symptoms of pain, but it doesn't mean your body's still not having a stress response to pain.
1: Yep, and this immediately, you'll be thinking has a couple of nursing implications, right? So you've likely worked somewhere or floated somewhere where a patient was a rapid sequence intubation, and then you are instructed to hang a propofol drip. Propofol is not an analgesic. So you are not controlling this patient's pain by sedating them. Is that appropriate? No, it's not. And just because you're potentially your APP team or your physician team isn't immediately primarily concerned with Analgesia in addition to sedation you should learn this and be aware and advocate for your patient Okay
0: I would like to clarify a point yeah. here before you guys misunderstand what Anna's saying Yes After an RSI you should 100% hang a propofol drip In Indeed. fact have that ready to go before the RSI happens yes. 100% of the time because most of the time when we're intubating critically ill patients We're using a paralytic called rocuronium and that one time RSI dose of rock uranium is going to keep your patient paralyzed for 45 minutes. Long so time. please keep them asleep with propofol. We don't want them to be aware of what's going on in oh, yes. any way, shape, or form. What Anna is saying is that if this is a patient who is also likely having pain, then please in addition get orders for pain control on top of that, yes. right? Like, an additional PRN. for pain. That's what I'm saying. I'm, I'm not saying
1: don't hang a purple fall drip. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, get your purple fall ready before you even go into the room. Like, have it hanging and ready to hook up. But also get pain control in addition to your purple fall drip.
0: And it depends on why your patient got intubated, right? right? If this is, like, a patient who got intubated for respiratory distress and they don't necessarily have, like, a fresh incision and they're not necessarily, like, super swollen all over, like, maybe they just need some sedation and then, like, we'll do some ventilator optimization and, like, maybe we don't need to be giving them, like, a ton of pain control. Like it, it really just depends on what their pathology is, but you have to understand your patient population. Like, is this patient likely having pain, yes or no? A breathing tube in and of itself isn't necessarily super painful. It can, if it hits your carina, that's where your right and left main stem bronchi branch off of your trachea, that's very stimulating. That makes people cough and buck. So that's why a lot of times you have a patient who's comfortable in the ICU mm-hmm. and you turn them and the breathing tube goes in just like an extra half a centimeter and then they're like this. It's because the tube's hitting the carina. That's like very uncomfortable. It stimulates your cough reflex. But the tube itself sitting there is not necessarily like super painful in and of itself. It's like a little uncomfortable and getting ventilated with positive pressure ventilation, like having a ventilator blow air in and out of you, like it's a little uncomfortable. So like some pain control is necessary, but they don't necessarily need the same amount of pain control as like a fresh liver patient or like a fresh open heart cardiac surgery patient. So like understanding like what's uncomfortable what's not uncomfortable are they tachycardic are they over breathing the vent like is their respiratory rate 30 like they probably need some pain control right Right, they're probably uncomfortable right yeah yeah so even
1: for a patient who is not pain is probably not the underlying one of the contributing factors here so like you're not at this point we're not talking about a fresh surgical patient or somebody or a trauma patient please treat your trauma patient's pain. Please. Please. (laughs) Please. But even for a patient who is an RSI for whatever else reason, you should still advocate for PRN pain orders. You should always have
0: the opt-in available. You
1: should always advocate for PRN pain orders so that if a patient does become symptomatically uncomfortable, tachycardic, tachypnic, looks like they're in pain, biting down on the tube, like, you want to have a PRN order, even if a patient is not necessarily, like, oh, this patient probably needs a fentanyl drip. Like, a trauma patient probably needs, like, Perpofol and like low dose fentanyl as well. Like, they're, it's really uncomfortable. They're all of their bones are broken. Like, that's Yeah, they probably do
0: need, in fact, a yeah. lot of different
1: <laughs> things for pain at that time. Yeah. Right. So, again, yeah, like have PRN orders for any like critically ill patient so that you can like y- use the tools in your toolbox. But then also just understanding that perpofol in and of itself, just because a patient is quiet and like sleepy, if they're on like a, you know, like 50 of perpofol, they might still be experiencing pain. And then Absolutely. use your assessment skills to do that. That's all that we're like saying here is. Exactly. Treat your patient's pain. Think about is this patient in pain? And if they had their chest cut open and then sewed back together, it's probably not Probably uncomfortable. doesn't feel great. It's probably not comfy. Um yeah.
0: things that are painful that like you know, sometimes like you just like learn like what's painful, what's not painful. Big mm-hmm. abdominal scissions, very painful. Oof. Anytime yeah. that you're cutting through a lot of muscle, very painful. So what's interesting in cardiac surgery is like young men with like big like Pectoral muscles Mm -hmm. or people who just like have more soft tissue there because of their body habitus Like they are gonna have a lot more pain with sternotomy than that like skinny little old lady who's like 90 years old and 90 pounds like Skin incisions like aren't that painful and actually like cutting the sternum itself like There's like some pain but like the muscle cutting is what really hurts people so big belly incisions really painful Um, broken bones really painful Interestingly enough, like even like craniotomies, like it's mostly skin. There's not a lot of well, believe it or not, it's actually less painful than, like if anyone's had a crani, like you can correct me if I'm wrong, but what we've noticed in the OR and like with their post-op pain requirements, it's a lot less than like an open belly patient because you would think cutting your head open, there's not a lot of muscle tissue there, so it's really like scalp and then skull, Mm -hmm. and and what tends to be painful for those patients are like the post-op swelling on the brain, yeah, like that obviously is super uncomfortable, like that headache. But the incision itself is not what's, like, driving a huge pain response, like, for an abdominal surgery. Or, like, if someone, like, you know, has, like, like a, like a broken femur. Like, that's extremely uncomfortable. Which
1: circles back to what you were saying a little bit earlier. Patients who have, like, massive amounts of third spacing and they're very swollen, that's also painful for patients. It's really painful to have all of this swelling, especially if that's coupled with incisions and all of this stuff. So... Be aware of that as well that's also very uncomfortable
0: yeah yeah if your patient is swollen like a water balloon like that hurts yeah that does not feel good again like the breathing tube um, if your patient keeps coughing and bucket on the tube that's another thing is like look at the x-ray mm-hmm. or like encourage someone else, ask somebody else to look at the x-ray like maybe the et tube is in too deep. Like, if it's tickling the carina and you're going to be coughing, they could just withdraw it like a centimeter. That's something I noticed in the ICU, and we all laugh about it in anesthesia. All the patients' tubes are like at 26, mm-hmm. they're all about to rate mean stem at any given time. 26 centimeters it's at the teeth is most... so deep. That's so deep. Unless 22 you're... to 24, usually. Again, yeah, like... unless you're like seven feet tall, like that's way
1: too deep. So <laughs> Which and then that circles to another podcast episode we're going to do about respiratory devices and then assessment, right? Yeah. So like checking your ET tube placement should be a part of your assessment at the beginning of the shift, especially if you're doing a lot of mobility, moving your patients around a lot, the the tube can get a little bit dislodged. So make sure that it's like staying in the same place. That's another assessment piece. Do you want to talk a little bit about Presidex?
0: All right. Presidex is such an, so this is where that like weird intersection of sedation and analgesia come in. Like we have a very hard line between Medications like midazolam and fentanyl, like this is the pathway this works on, this is the pathway that works on, and this one is anxiety and sedation, and this one is pain control, but it might make you sleepy. Like, okay, fine, that's easy to understand. Right. We get into drugs that have effects on completely different receptor pathways, or maybe sometimes they work on both receptors, and like and now things like get a little bit more blurred. Dexmedetomidine, or Presidex works on the alpha two receptors in the brain. Like like a whole different process here. So when you are working on that receptor, it also causes primarily that anxiety-relieving effect, anxiolytic. An, anx- anxiolytic. Anti-anxiety. Anti-anxiolytic. Yeah. And we're also making your patient sleepier. It also does have some analgesic properties, some pain control properties, but it's not a strong or potent analgesic. So it works really well in conjunction with other pain medications to make the pain control better. Right. So if you run dexmedetomidine with a fentanyl infusion, you can have lower doses of both. Mm-hmm. You'll need less fentanyl because the dex is helping with the anti and it also does have some of those analgesic properties. And then again, because you're getting some sedation from the fentanyl and some pain control from the fentanyl, you'll need less dexmedetomidine. So if you use them together, they make each other more potent, more effective, and that's called synergy. They have synergetic effects with each other. So they both make each other stronger. Instead of one plus one equaling two, mm-hmm. it's like one plus one equals three. And it's the same thing when you run a medazolan infusion with a fentanyl infusion or an adivan infusion with a fentanyl infusion. Like th- whenever you're combining those two different categories of drugs, they both make each other have stronger effects. And you could run lower doses of both, which is a really great thing. And this is a unit specific breakdown in patient population specific yeah physician specific like what they're used to what their training is because oftentimes your physician team will
1: be accustomed to okay for a patient with like agitation or a patient who you're trying to like lighten their sedation and move towards extubation you end up in a place where you have a patient who still maybe has some pain control needs and maybe some agitation needs only on Presidex. and then right. If they're only on Presidex, this is where you end up with the dex strip is at 1.5 mics per kick per minute, and this you're is why they're breaking. This, like this is like a this is a huge rate, and they're still in pain. And then the nurse is like, Dex doesn't work. It doesn't do anything because
0: the patient's still likely in pain. Yeah, yeah. Dex doesn't work because you're not controlling your patient's pain, and they're having a lot of pain. Right. Dexmedetomidine is amazing for like helping someone just like. You know, if you have a patient who you're trying to wake up and get a breathing tube out of, especially if they've been intubated for like weeks and now we're just trying to get them to like, you know, we're 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 not sure if we're gonna get, they're gonna get a trach or not, or we're trying to like you know, we're trying to vent liberate this patient. And they're pretty much awake all the time. That's scary for them, right? These like we've all had the patient who's like sitting up in bed who is intubated and is like super chill, like reading a book, like watching like the food network phone. and yeah. like testing. <laughs> that's really cool. But that's a really special person to do that. It's scary to be in the ICU. A lot yeah. of times when people wake up in the ICU, they don't know where they are, they don't remember how they got there. Like also being on the vent with positive pressure ventilation. It's is just uncomfortable. uncomfortable, right? So like Dex is really great for a patient who's like been stable. They're not like necessarily in a lot of pain from surgery. They're not necessarily super swollen, but like we're trying to get them vent liberated. It's just enough to help the anxiety and to help the mild amounts of pain. Maybe they're getting Tylenol around the clock with it. Mm-hmm. Maybe they're getting like some PRN Dilaudid or fentanyl here and there, like just to keep them comfy. Like that's awesome. Or alternatively, you know, if I bring up a big belly, uh, an open belly patient to the sick you, like, okay, they had an X lab we closed the belly, they actually did great, like maybe they had a small bowel obstruction mm-hmm. and we relieved the small bowel obstruction and now we close the belly and we expect this patient to do really, really well tonight. You can get the breathing tube out in like an hour or two. Totally. You know, the um, dex would be a great infusion to bring them to the ICU on. It's just gonna keep them comfy and bridge them over so that you can get the pain control on board, right? What I give in the operating room isn't gonna last forever. It is going to wear off eventually. Mm -hmm. So you need to get your own pain control on board. And then that's gonna bridge them to that extubation. So that's like another great opportunity. Dex is great for neuro patients because you know, propofol is going to keep them sleepy. It has a context sensitive um, half-life. So like the longer the drip is on, the longer it takes for the propofol to wear off. So if you have propofol on for five minutes, it wears off pretty quick. If you have propofol on for three days, it takes hours to go away. So you know that's not great for a neuro patient who we're trying to get exams on frequently, right? So neuro patients, a dex infusion with pain control, is key but i think even a lot of providers are afraid to give the pain control because they're also confusing it with the the sedative properties they're so scared that if you give the fentanyl you're going to make them too sleepy and it's going to mess up the exam but in truth if you're giving 25 micrograms of fentanyl at a time every 15 minutes and titrating it to effect it's going to be a very safe way to give that medication the peak respiratory depressant effects of fentanyl are at about the five minute mark and in fifteen minutes you're already seeing like the full effects of the fentanyls, like pain control and like seeing if you really need more.
1: Which really gets into knowing the half life of your medications. Yeah, and know, the effect, know the peak effect,
0: know the half life, right. know the side effects, what to look out for. Because again, like even with propofol.
1: Propofol's pretty fast on, fast off
0: if a patient hasn't been on for
1: twelve days. days. Yeah, or 12 days. like ten yeah. days, right? So if it's fast on, fast off and then you're it's going to be largely out of the system within about like five minutes of cutting or cutting it off or reducing it significantly, then you don't need to, that's going to change your nursing interventions. You don't need to like wean your propofol for four hours for a single day surgery patient. Like, yeah, it can come off much faster than that. Same with Presidex knowing how long it's on and off. Alternatively, like, and you can check out, I believe we might have the known It's a lecture in the CCA membership. I don't know if we'll have it on the YouTube or not. But like knowing that the half-life of that is about like four to five hours, that's also key because you're going to know that it takes much longer to come on and off. So just knowing how your medications work and then using them in your benefit. A lot of times, even with fentanyl, I think sometimes nurses think that you can't give fentanyl because if they don't have like an advanced airway. And that's just, I was told this in the cardiac surgery ICU, one of them. One of the cardiac surgery ICU nurses, nurses who was like a pretty new grad, told me that I couldn't give fentanyl unless they were intubated. I'm like, that's just not true. But
0: (laughs) they do it in PACU every day. It's we do it in PACU and every single. Anyway, it's know. know, started. Know how your medications work and know how to dose them appropriately. Yes. And again, you're gonna have orders for this, right? right? And then we also have Narcan available. And also, your patient's on a monitor. Do not turn off your respiratory rate on your monitor alarm. Do not turn off your SpO2 alarms ever. If you need help troubleshooting, we have an entire lecture in the CCA membership about monitoring and how to troubleshoot your monitors. So, you know, please troubleshoot correctly. So, like, if you have all those monitors in place and you're giving it according to the order set and, like, you're being cautious and you know what to look out for and you hold it if your patient's starting to look sleepy, like, you're going to be... Okay. One thing I wanna add that's really important is sometimes I see the opposite problem. So mm-hmm. instead of people under sedating patients, we have an issue where when people run fentanyl infusions, they also forget that it has that contact sensitive half-life where the longer the fentanyl infusion's on board, the longer it's gonna stick around and they're like deeply sedating patients on high doses of fentanyl. And your patient is going to develop opioid tolerance really quickly. You're going to have all of those effects of like that constipation, like slowing down the GI tract. Like mm-hmm. this is like the opposite Which problem, is not right? what you want for critical patients. For yeah, patients who are critical they all the already own. have GI motility issues. You're making it worse. Um, yeah. Like ah. And then you're also gonna have the issue of like, yeah, now they have respiratory depression. Like, yeah, now they're like super sedated. Like a lot of times nurses will have orders for a propofol drip and a fentanyl drip. Like use that like synergy mm-hmm. to kind of like get both of them in a really good sweet spot. So for example, um, one of our members, works in a unit and I. this makes me so irritated that like everybody on the unit seems to be doing this like a whole unit is doing this wrong. I'm like, ah, okay. So what they do is they're running the fentanyl at like 200. That's like really, it's high. really high, and like not that I've never done that before. I've definitely had patients with chronic pain who developed a tolerance. You're also and like, in the OR, and they used to be like heroin users. No, like even in the ICU, right? Like they're used to. They have really high opioid tolerances, But right. like this patient had a huge surgery, and they used to do heroin beforehand. And like, so okay, need, I get why they need a lot of fentanyl they to need get a lot codified. of pain. That's yeah. different. That's totally different. But when we're talking about like most patients, like running your drip that high, and then they'll have the propofol at like five. Why? Five no. mice per kilo per minute. You basically have no propofol on board. If you turned it off, your patient would look exactly the same. Why bother? Well, then so that's understanding. So they're using the fentanyl at a really high dose to cause sedation, instead of using the propofol for sedation and the fentanyl for pain control. So what that person could do is probably cut their fentanyl to like 50 and their propofol to like 50 and their patient would look great and have less hypotension, less like bad effects of the opioid. Again, they're not gonna develop that like, horrible tolerance to opioids where now when we give them opioids after they're liberated from the vent, they're going to have like huge requirements because they've been on a massive fentanyl drip for days like you're causing a whole different downstream of effects in your patients so please understand like if you're paid like this is why we have the there's scales. higher incidence of bowel obstruction i'm honestly i'm sure they do i'm just ter- i'm horrified at the whole thing but you know this is why we have the agitation scales the richmond uh the ras, the yeah. RAS scale was it richmond agitation and sedation scale? I think so. Agitation, sedation scale, right? And then like that's why you're actually supposed to assess that every it's couple like every hours. hour in a lot of places. Well, I don't remember. Okay, it's been a long time. But yeah, you like every time that you round on your patient, you should be seeing or like how agitated they are. And then we also have a behavioral pain scale that you're supposed to do alongside that. So actually use the scales. Actually think your way through it and actually think like, is my patient having pain? Is or it Are a, they having anxiety? Is it a sedation or
1: problem or a pain problem? And you they can have they can need it both sedation both. and pain control. And again, like the 50 mics of fentanyl an hour and the 50 mics of probe, that's also not like a prescription. But this not is ta- yeah, this use, is not medical
0: advice. Please use, use your treatment.
1: scales. And then a seven foot male young patient who has high opiate needs might need a little bit more than that. And a tiny tiny little grandma might need less of both so like use your clinical judgment for both but then also use them together
0: and titrate them to your behavioral pain scale and to your enrichment and your your basket like you're titrating it to the scales exactly to their vital signs to like your understanding of like what's going on with the patient Mm -hmm. and then like again like if you're running one drip at a really really high dose and one drip at a really really low dose think to yourself like does this make sense like propofol at five mics per kilo per minute like what is that even doing? That's like a whip. If you calculate the ml per hour, it's like one ml of it's propofol like a, an hour. It's like a sprinkle. It's like a, it's it's like like a, a salt a mist. It's like a mist of propofol over your patient. Like, what <laughs> are you even doing? And then like running your fentanyl at that crazy high dose, like opioids have consequences too. So like, could this patient get IV Tylenol? Mm. Could, or even down the OG tube, PO Tylenol or rectal Tylenol? Could they have that? Yeah. Could they also be getting um, like, maybe some sort of a NSAID. That's like another option for some patients. I know in the ICU a lot of our patients don't qualify for NSAIDs, but you know
1: who knows? Use it's,
0: adjunctive therapy adjunctive if their therapy. kidneys work, you know. But yeah. okay. Talk with out. your yeah. team. Talk with the team. Come up with different options. And then again, if you're running your Fentanyl drip at a really high dose, or your Ataman drip at a really high dose, or your midazolam drip at a really high dose, Like maybe you need a second agent. Maybe that's the problem. If your DEX isn't working, instead of running your DEX at 1.5 and having the heart rate drop to 30, maybe you just need a PRN order for some Dilaudid here and there. And speaking of using your PRNs, a lot of times, especially in the surgical
1: patient population, you're given PO meds and IV meds. Mm-hmm. So as soon if they're gonna keep an OG tube in, they're gonna be intubated for a day or two, use your PO medications, like especially if you can give PO Talonol, PO Oxy, that's going to provide kind of longer acting pain control for patient than that really short on, short off fentanyl. And then you're able to give a little bit more like around the clock pain control in addition to your sedation. Yeah. And then as you're moving towards extubating, I always like to make sure that I give like the PO Talonol, and Oxy, before
0: i like an
1: hour before we pull the tube so that hopefully that's on board keeping
0: awareness though a lot of the times people suction out the og tube yeah. like right before you excavate which you should do you should suction out your og tube before you excavate so like want to think about that like are you going to give the po medication and then suck it out right away and then they're not really getting it so like make sure you think about like the timing the timing of that right another option is like just a longer acting iv medication like they again like right. it, it really just depends right but so like planning ahead critically thinking your way through it. Also
1: start low, right? So again, if you have a patient and they're not immediately presenting with very low or very high, like on either end of the spectrum, abnormal pain control needs, like you can always start with your Tylenol. Tylenol. You can start with your Tylenol, you can start with your lower dose and then see how they tolerate, especially if you're about to extubate, Mm -hmm. and then go from there. So like, don't not treat pain because you're about to extubate, but do also, if you have a scale, a sliding scale and you can either give like five, 10 or 20 of Oxy and you're about to extubate, don't give 20. Don't give 20, yeah. Start <laughs> start with a five or the 10 right. plus the Tylenol and then go from there.
0: Yeah, because the breathing tube and again, positive pressure, positive pressure ventilation is stimulating and uncomfortable in and of itself. So if you have a patient who doesn't really have signs and symptoms of like pain control needs and they're like a little sleepy and you think they're almost ready to extubate and you're kind of like, eh, like maybe that patient doesn't need the Oxy because maybe, maybe like you don't need to give them anything at all even because or like whatever whatever you want to do because you don't want to make them any sleepier and then mm-hmm. pull the tube the only thing that's keeping them awake and now they're out of it right right conversely if you have a patient who's breathing over the bed at rate of 22 and they're awake and they're bucking and they're like, ah, like okay like you can give them some pain control yes at pretty safe which time. again fentanyl peak respiratory depression effects are
1: like 15 minutes after so if Treat yeah, your back, yeah. treat your patient's pain now. It'll probably take about fifteen minutes for the RT to get in there anyway, and then see how they are, and then go from there. So yeah. like, don't not treat your patient's pain because you think you're about to extubate immediately.
0: Yeah, use your judgment again. Like, yeah. if your patient's in a lot of pain, treat it. If your patient is like kind of sleepy, don't treat it. Right. But yeah. so like, I think these things like are really obvious to people who are more experienced. Like, duh. But when you're new and you're kind of like, wait, do I give it? Do I not give it? Like pause take a deep breath and look think at your patient. way through the situation and yeah, look at the patient yeah your use, assessment use is your, your assessment and we're going to film an episode about
1: assessment and how like as an icu nurse or any nurse like really the cornerstone
0: of nursing is really like assessment like assessment and communication so i'm excited about that episode as well it's going to be good all right gang you're all amazing uh, again for like the in-depth farm stuff please join us in the Confident Care Academy membership. We'd love to see you there. We have an amazing community of people who are reaching out to each other for questions and support, their clinical questions, their ICU advice questions. Um, we have, again, in-depth video lectures, a pharmacology library that grows every month. Yeah, We can't wait to see you there. And comment what you would like for us to talk about on this channel next time. See you
1: next time. Bye. Bye.